0: This week on the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast.
1: I, I would say that uh, the human nature uh, makes all of us risk-averse, right? We, we're, not, we're not risk-taking in, by nature. So it's, um, we like our comfort zone, you know, um, we like to eat. I mean, uh, we like to eat different food, but pro- provided they are all from the same traditional sources, right? <laughs> Uh, so moving forward, what we are seeing is that there uh, is, is a monoculture of the traditional food crops. It's not really sustainable because they, they have all these environmental impact and the soil degradation all these problems.
0: Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict and Emergency Management podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle and I will be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment? And what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Okay, today we are talking with uh, Professor William Chin, who is the Michael Pham Endowed Chair Professor and Director of Food Science and Technology Program at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Professor William Chin and his interdisciplinary team have developed various food technology platforms towards zero waste food circular economy. And these have resulted in his active joint research and development with food industry, leading to the successful commercialization of a number of his innovations. He is also actively engaged in various government efforts in enhancing food security, and he is a director of Singapore Agri-Food Innovation Lab, co-director of the NTU Future Ready Food Safety Hub, and director of the Food Industry Joint Innovation Lab. Now, Professor Chen is an advisor and consultant to many different government agencies, the World Health Organization, the Asian Development Bank, and the Good Food Institute, APAC Food Industry, and overseas universities, including University of Florida, on matters related to food technology and food security. And in 2019, the Going Green program by CNN described Professor Chen as a game-changing leader in the green revolution of the food system. Professor Chen,
1: thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Mr. King. Thank you so much for reaching out and having me on the program. It's a true honor to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion. But before we get started, maybe give us some insights into how you got started in the field of food safety and food security and then what brought you into this sort of niche area that you're working in today?
1: Well, as, you, uh, as we all know, Singapore is a very small city state uh, with uh, almost zero natural resources. So we rely heavily on import and supply chain, including food. And uh, as we are seeing the impact of a, a lot of external factors that include uh, climate change, and the covid-19 pandemic and now the war in ukraine all these have a very very direct impact first on the food production second on the supply chain and so so for a small country like singapore uh, enhancing the food security is an uh, existential priority uh, so much so uh, very similar to water security which we have developed um, this new technology you know, it's called new water And uh, in the food space, so what we are looking at is actually how to develop innovations and translate into solutions to sort of build an efficient uh, food system, which uh, which would uh, sort of highlight on the, uh, sort of focus more on the quality of the food uh, to be produced rather than on the the quantity because we are a small island. There is a need to enhance uh, local farming capabilities even though we have a less than 1% of land for farming, but we can rely on technology to push for uh, vertical farming. That's one example. So urban farming is, uh, is one of the very few choices we have in Singapore. The second one is uh, uh, processing technology. Uh, as, as we know, uh, the traditional food system is uh, operating in a linear form, which means we generate a lot of waste. And we, this is not not just for Singapore. For the whole world, it will not be sustainable because with uh, a you know growing, increasing world population, the the demand for food will increase. But if we rely on the current uh, food system, there's no way we can sustain the, the food production. So there's a uh, we are actually developing innovations to enhance the processing technology and reduce food waste. And uh, so this this become a part and parcel of this food system, a circular system. The third aspect we're looking at is how to produce food that adapt to the the different layers of society. In, in, in the context of Singapore, we have a very fast aging population. So how to produce food that is acceptable by elderly in Singapore, but worldwide we're talking about normal food, alternative food, how to get... A uh, consumer acceptance about this alternative novel food—that's uh, another issue we need to tackle. Well, that's interesting. Can you go into that a little bit
0: more for the uninitiated, like myself? The, so, when you're talking about the, the the circular process for food, and and what are we talking about really, from the you know generating
1: food to food waste and and things like that? What are we describing here? So, this, for example, if we talk about the farming, right, the farming side, so. Traditionally, we have uh, this uh, farmland, industrial farm side, uh, farmland, which is very, usually they are located far away from the urban area. Yeah, so uh, then you have this uh, first layer of the food waste. In fact, it's a food loss. That is a post harvest, right? So that involves this uh, transportation, storage. That generally, I I think anything around thirty percent of uh, agriculture uh, produce is lost before you even reach the processing side. And then from there, processing will have some side streams like soybean residues, uh, barley spank green, all these we call it processing side streams. These are the uh, waste that cannot be uh, managed by consumers because they, the consumer, they are, they are really at the very far end of the retail chain. But uh, at the consumer side, we also have these uh, consumer... Uh, generator food waste, right? Like restaurant or household. So that's another type of um, uh, food waste. All in, we are talking about the easily thirty to forty percent of uh, food produce go to the waste. So if actually if we can plug a hole, div- this uh, food waste hole, and the whole of this uh, food waste, uh, in fact, there's a estimate by Food and Agriculture Organization under the UN that if we can, the worldwide, not just Singapore, Singapore is a little bit too small, worldwide, if we can achieve zero food waste, then there's actually no need to introduce GM crops, all these kind of things. So there's a way to actually enhance uh, food production without demanding more land do this. So when we talk about circular economy, it's really about integrating all these different elements together. So from production to processing and to consumer, there's very little or zero waste generator. Of course, this is the ideal situation, but from you know from the current thirty to forty percent down to I think below ten percent, this is uh, this is actually a uh, uh, more realistic than really push for zero waste. But you know zero waste is more like a more like a aspiration rather than an expectation. Yeah. So if we talk about circular economy, what does it really mean in the food space? So. Take an example of processing side stream like soybean residue in Asia. Uh, in Singapore, we generate every year about twenty over tons of soybean residue a year. So what do people do usually? There are no animal farm. We only have two chicken farms in Singapore. So they either send for, for incineration, and then after that landfill, or they ship to Malaysia to uh, for animal feed. So we at my university, our team, have de- we have developed this innovation to use simple technology. The, the, something good about food technology is that you don't, have to, you don't need rocket science. You know, you, you can, actually it's very interdisciplinary, very easy to, to implement the technology. See, in this case, about soybean residue, we use actually fermentation. Which is everybody knows about fermentation, right? So, the the idea of applying fermentation is to take the nutrient out of the soybean residue, right? Then, after that, the, of course, the fermentation will not be able to remove all the soybean residue because that would be too easy, right? Uh, there's still a substantial 40 to 50 percent of the residue solid residue that remains. So, what we have done after that is we develop cellulose extraction technology to convert this uh, solid residue into packaging materials. Yeah. So as a whole, you can see this is a zero waste processing. Then uh, you may ask, what do you do with this nutrient recover? If we don't do anything about it, it's another, it's another form of waste which uh, defeat the purpose, right? So what we have done is a tree, uh, a number of applications reconnect back to the food chain. Example one, uh, when we talk about urban farming, that we don't obviously we can't grow all the crops and indoor and or underground, right? So we select a species which are suitable for urban farming. One example is uh, microalgae. So there are a lot of uh, protein-rich species of microalgae, but if we grow in the city, everything is expensive: electricity, a uh, uh, setup, you know, infrastructure setup. So the idea here is to look at all the possible corners and bring in technology to lower the cost. So in this case, culture medium of a microalgae, the commercial culture medium is not expensive, but if you talk about scale, at the scale up production level, you'll be expensive. So what we have done is that replace the microalgae culture medium with our fermented soybean residue. And uh, interestingly, the microalgae grow three times faster and the cost is three times less to achieve nighttime Im- improvement. This is just an example to show that there are ways to apply the, this uh, food waste valorization into the urban farming. Another example, even more exciting, is that when we talk about cultivated meat, the new kit you know, uh, on the on the block for the uh, alternative food, everybody is excited, but but everybody is always also stuck in, in reality because the fetal boron serum is so expensive, uh, we're we talking about $2,000 US dollar per liter. And then if we rely on this uh, fetal serum, we are not moving away from animal farming because you still need the calf to get the serum. So what we have demonstrated is that this fetal boron serum can be replaced by the fermented okra, uh, uh, fermented soybean residue. Again, this brings down the cost from 2000 to to $2 a liter. This is a tremendous uh, uh, improvement in cost cutting and also make the, this uh, uh, cultivated meat uh, industry more sustainable because we really are moving away from the animal farming. Yeah. Moving the next level up to the value chain in the next level is that this, uh, we have demonstrated that the protein proportion of this uh, fermented barley, for example, barley green, right? Is we can extract the protein uh, portion, and then replace the uh, egg yolk in the mayonnaise because they have this emulsifying function. So we have produced this uh, brand new plant-based mayonnaise, which tastes. Uh, the, now I say that I am not the one uh, I'm not the one here to promote the product, but journalists, they did a plant test, right, and then they say it tastes different but fragrant. So tastes equally good, right? The, than the commercial mayonnaise. So you may ask, uh, then what do you do with uh, the rest? Uh, well, the we have a packaging material. We have uh, integration of the nutrient recover from the fermentation valorization. So you can see this is how we build this circular economy. The waste become not a waste, but Part and parcel of this uh, food system. Yeah, this is uh, some real example developed by NTU, uh, by my university, and uh, uh, we are uh, all these innovations are being commercialized through our partnership with the food industry.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, thank you for those examples because it really highlights the efficiency that can be achieved by just trying to refine our processes and to be able to, you know, come up with more innovative ideas to address some of these key and in food insecurity issues. And when I look at yep. some of the statistics specifically like with the United States, that we're saying that basically in 2020 an estimated 1 in 8 Americans were food insecure, which means that's about 38 million Americans including almost 12 million children were going through a, you know, sort of food insecurity meaning a lack of consistent access to enough food for an yep. active or healthy lifestyle. So these efficiencies and these uh, process can help tremendously in addressing these issues. Like you mentioned, I think the United Nations was saying, if we can just solve the efficiency equation, we could solve the insecurity equation. But you also mentioned something there about acceptance and sort of social acceptance of this. Um, what what challenges have you had in terms of social acceptance for these type of topics?
1: I, I would say that uh, the human nature uh, makes all of us risk-averse Right, we we're not we're not risk taking in by nature. So is um, we like our comfort zone, you know? Um, we like to eat. I mean, eat, uh, we like to eat different food, but pro- provided they are all from the same s- traditional sources, right? <laughs> uh, so moving forward, what we are seeing is that uh, is there is a monoculture of the traditional food crops it's not really sustainable because they they have all these environmental impact and the soil con- de- degradation, all these problems. So. Idea here is that uh, we, instead of, uh, you know, I, I'll share one story, very interesting story with you. This is about a potato. Potato, uh, six, 700 years, years ago, it, it, it used to be an a, a indoor plant because of the beautiful flower, right? Yellow flower. If you check internet, you'll find them. Uh, so, uh, and then there was this uh, food crisis in uh, South America. Then people start looking for alternative food. Then potato, day after I cut the long story short then potato become now one of the main food crops but i we we i don't think we should wait every time for food crisis to to kick in then we look for food then it a little bit too late right so proactively now people start looking for alternative food we don't have to always grow everything in a lab you know like cultivated meat or this something kind of it is it, good but it's not cheap you it, it, it will stay expensive for a while uh, if we open our eyes and look into you know, nature, you, you see regionally available, um, but it's not part and parcel of the traditional crop farming. Uh, we talk about in Asia, in Africa, in Africa, um, Bambara ground nuts, all these are naturally available uh, nutritious crops, which can be alternative food sources. And so, but the consumer acceptance is, is, uh, is something that we need to address because no point producing all the food, putting so much effort to produce something no one buys, right? <laughs> uh, so, another example is the uh, insect protein, right? Uh, a lot of people just cannot accept that the insect can be part and parcel of the diet. But I think this is a uh, sort of, uh, we need a lot of education. Yeah, we need the education. We need to let people... It's a collective effort. To make food systems sustainable is actually drawing responsibility. It's not just the government. It's not just the industry. Consumer must come in. Otherwise, uh, nothing will work out. So I would say that uh, one easy way... So I, I like to give real-life real, real examples. It's easy to, to relate. One example is that I myself have tasted uh, this uh, uh, inside protein blended pasta made in, made made by the dutch in the netherlands it tastes equally good you see so consumer when they come to novel food there are two things on their mind one is uh, taste the other one is uh, is price so we we, we there's a famous uh, quote that says taste is king price is queen so uh, another way is that the uh, consumers when they come to novel food they can be they can be very fussy first time taste no good they will not try again so one way to go easy to enhance consumers' confidence in our food is actually to replace the ingredient of a current currently available food with some of these alternative sources. Like just now I mentioned, the protein ingredient, you, you replace with inside protein. No one can tell the difference. Slowly, you, you know, uh, so it's a progressive uh, sort of uh, transition. And then I think that in that way people will start uh, to to appreciate this um, normal food. but I think for plant-based protein there's no difficult to 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 convince a consumer. One of the reasons the main reason is that the the plant based diet is uh, is is culture is traditionally worldwide everybody knows everybody eat that right so uh, from sort of a mainly vegetarian type of diet you move to didn't reach vegetarian, then uh, this uh, is only a, a plus point there. Yeah. Well,
0: that's interesting. I think social acceptance, you're absolutely right, is going to sort of take the lead on whether this is going to be effective or not. And I, I certainly hope that it does. But I wanted to to talk a little bit more about, say, the the, the future perspective here in terms of food security, food insecurity, and what it means. And, and when we're looking across the horizon, and you're I know you can't really predict the future but if we're looking across the horizon we're seeing things that are that are happening in global events today and some of the trends and indicators that you're looking at uh, both as an institution as an expert in this field there's many things that are going on uh, that can also be quite concerning and and one of the things that we discuss on on this podcast in particular is things like the Ukraine crisis uh, so we're seeing a lot of global events. I mean, even uh, from the World Food Program, they're saying 44 million people in 38 countries are teetering on the edge of famine and overall global needs for humanitarian assistance are even higher. And then we add in the the conflict in Ukraine and the impact on the food supply, global food supply. What are you seeing in terms of the, the horizon scanning when you're looking at these sort of issues? What are some of your
1: thoughts here? Well, uh, I think, first of all, when we look at the food system, I think we need to actually focus. Not not see. Uh, I I think we should avoid focusing on just a full product. It's the entire full value chain. So up from the farming, passing through the processing, and then the distribution and consumer consumer end, right? And uh, if we look at uh, today's situation, it's getting uh, really volatile. Uh, Uh, I would say. The adaptation strategy and the mitigation strategy are very important. We ought not to rely too much on one source. You know that this is a, very, a little bit similar to Singapore's water security. Uh, be, because of the geographic location and the nature, uh, we can only get water from one single source. That really limit the option. In case of crisis, you never know, right? So uh, for food, we adopt a different strategy because we tap on global supply chain. Uh, Singapore imports more than 90% of food from over 160 countries. But I sensed this many years ago, but I didn't didn't say it loudly because people people say, just crying wolf, right? I said there may be one day with money you cannot buy food this is uh, something that we are seeing now, right? I I would say, uh, instead of uh, seeing the global level, which we will see too many variables, new variables, uh, we cannot really control the global situation. One way to mitigate this uh, uh, crisis uh, is perhaps to build a regional partnership. So, so uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is that we are not saying closing doors, uh, ASEAN stay ASEAN, Europe stay Europe, but rather uh, you can build this sort of uh, efficient food system from a uh, smaller region rather than global level. And then from there, it, it's uh, stretchable. It becomes stretchable because the similar technology that you use to build efficient system, a uh, food system in your region may be tweaked to and uh, applicable for other regions depending on the Type of food and type of the consumer demand, right? So by doing so, you have these different blocks which can inter can be interconnected, right? So in that way, I I think uh, that that can be a, a good uh, one one option to deal with this crisis. Why I say this is that the uh, uh, example of a. Uh, Uh, When Singapore, we are developing urban farming, then you may ask, Singapore is so small, how far can you go, right? This is a real question. The advantage of developing urban farming, uh, first is that uh, more and more people move to to the city. So it's predicted about 70%, more than 70% of people will stay in the urban area uh, by 2050. Uh, So urban farming has a future. Although I can't grow everything in the city, but this is a one of the attraction. The second one uh, is that uh, there are a lot of mega cities around Singapore, so you can we can work with the regional partners, right? They have a different test base to test a uh, technology innovation development in Singapore. Then everyone benefits from it. Then we grow together. So the food system become more like a, a cooperative rather than transaction. You don't just every time just use money to, to get food. But if you share technology, then I think uh, it, it becomes more, much more friendly and uh, people tend to help each other when they are more friendly, right?
0: Uh, that's I think that's an interesting point. You know, there's that expression in disasters and emergency management where, you know, all disasters are local. And so the, the impact is absolutely with the communities. And in this case, you could... You know, build that model out and you could look at it from a regional perspective on food security and and stabilize your own region and then sort of export those processes, that technology, yeah. those lessons learned and, and to other regions and try and create more stability in other areas as well. But I, I see, for example, you know, when we when we look at things like the Ukraine crisis and what's happening and, and sort of what we're seeing in terms of global food supply, which is, I think, a, an important Sort of piece to your point when we talk about global markets, supply chains, and supplies, and the effect of conflict. You know, when they're saying like there's 13.5 million tons of wheat and 16 million tons of maize or corn, basically, uh, are frozen in the two countries, right, between Ukraine and Russia, which is yeah. 23 and 43 yeah. percent of their expected exports in 2021 and 2022. So we're already and in many locations, I can sort of vouch for this. You know, currently where I live, I mean, you can go to the stores and you can yeah. start to see that there's no uh, sunflower oil and and things like that. Uh, and and we're starting to see some shortages, nothing overly dramatic, but there's a noticeable sort of shortage in some things that are coming from that specific region because of the impact of conflict on the global supply chain, like you're talking about.
1: Yeah, uh, but I was I would also say that uh, if we actually um there's always a buffer in nature. You know, nature provides a lot of buffer, right? Uh, uh, in this case, in the crop farming, I would say the silver lining is actually to really find ways to move away from uh, lifestyle farming. Because, you know, the crops that we grow, uh, around 60 to, to 80% of the crops we grow is channeled to, to be animal feed. So it's not efficient. So you can see that, uh, well, I mean, the in the absolute number, is very scary what you just mentioned, right? The the wheat production in Ukraine, in, in Russia. But I think this is uh, really a, a wake-up call. All these crises, COVID-19 war in Ukraine, and uh, I, I think they are more acute wake-up calls than climate change. Because climate change, you see, is like a frog in the slow heating water pot, right? So after a while, you, you don't see immediate impact, but this crisis uh, we have up call to force the uh, people uh, or policymaker to look beyond the current system and find a way to to improve. So I in, in long run, I don't think I don't see it as a bad thing because there are a lot of flaws. But you know, if the car is running, people are lazy. They don't don't, don't send to the mechanics to, to 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 do regular regular servicing, right? It's the same thing. So here, it's not like a Ukraine Russia. Uh, are the only producer of wheat but then you if you put that number in the equation of how much crops are really channeled for consumer for our for our dining table very little you know <laughs> so uh, if you you know you balance out everything if there time to uh, uh, this is time to adjust tighten the weak points and then build an efficient system I think this is a perfect timing so i, I I'm sorry I'm the more like an optimistic type of a, a nature in nature yeah so I always see opportunity in crisis yeah
0: yeah that's interesting in terms of the overall efficiency and I think that's one of the things that we don't really hear very often in terms of the larger discussion you know obviously the you know this sort of really catastrophic you know, conflict in Ukraine and what's happening, and then the the views on food security. But we don't hear about this sort of clarification, like yep. you're talking about, where you say, "Okay, well, let's take a step back and see actually how much of that is actually going to food
1: for the population." Exactly, exactly. So I I, I say another example. I mean the. Uh, because of the traditionally the food system is linear as we mentioned earlier, so farmers they may not predict what is a real market demand. So sometimes they they overproduce, overgrow the crops. What do they do? They just leave it, right? So there are a lot of loss along the way, probably even higher than what what we are seeing the, uh, the loss due uh, because of the war. So. So all this uh, is about the how to how how we we tighten the the food system not necessarily always look for waste valorization but sometimes uh, the think data analytics will pay, make the system much more efficient so really demand drive supply so if a consumer doesn't want these thing why why do you produce every year so much right Uh, uh, likewise you know you mentioned earlier the world is suffering for many places people have no access to food it's a distribution problem also it doesn't mean that there's no food it's just like you know so there are a lot of uh, uh, aspects of the current food system that need to be tightened but once we build uh, solely in the, uh, let's say, in, in the city like Singapore or in some other area in, uh, around the world, there is a circular economy system. If, if, if this can be spilled over to the current food production system, I think uh, the food system will be more resilient to these external factors.
0: Yeah, That's interesting. And and so when we talk about situations like, and Ukraine is not the only one, but when we talk about food insecurity and conflict, have you looked often in, in terms of what food insecurity means and that it can lead to conflict? Has that come across your research at all? Huh,
1: it's a very interesting point. Very interesting point. Uh, but Singapore, the, the, I, I, I could not do too much of a, a few studies because we don't have farm, right? <laughs> very little farm. But I would say um, uh, what you point out is a very important uh, point. In the Southeast Asia region, for example, we have uh, 80% of smallholder farmers yeah. All these climate change uh, rise in sea level and uh, uh, supply chain disruption will make a lot of people jobless, right? So, uh, and then this will be another source of the micro- human movement towards uh, where the food is, uh, like in the city. And then that will cause a lot of uh, uh, constraint and pressure, increase the pressure on the food system, then that, that when people have nothing to eat, then that's a, one of the reasons for them to start fighting, right? And so, so it's, uh I would say, when we talk about, in this particular case, when we talk about future food system, it's not just about uh, what we want to see as a, a, a tasty alternative food, but it's also, should reflect back on the farming side, uh, how we take care of the farmers' uh, uh, interest, livelihood, otherwise it's a broken uh, broken system yeah yeah mm, that's
0: interesting
1: i think i i just mentioned southeast asia yeah, southeast asia region because i i think it applies to many parts of the world you know when the water when you have this a long period longer period of drought and then the uh, strongest tropical storms to that affect livelihood of many farmers and uh, this is a serious issue actually yeah so uh, while food insecurity may not lead directly to a conflict, what
0: we often see is that, like you're saying, it's a contributing factor. And so it's it's an issue of the yep. maybe it is climate change and and it's affecting certain coastal crops or whatever the case is, but it can drive other economic factors. It can drive instability. It can drive job loss. It can drive supply chain dynamics and impact yep. on societies, and then therefore cause conflict and and even the you know the world bank was saying in terms of conflict security and development that the lack of food has been the source of many past and recent conflicts food insecurity has clearly been a factor behind outbreaks of social unrest or worse and yet conflict also has induced notable instances of food insecurity and often because of when you do have a conflict and what are they going after what are they attacking in the case of ukraine again you'll see attacks on industrial complexes you'll see um, a degradation of capabilities to produce or deliver or you know um, even now you know being able to plant crops things like that so there's a significant impact because of conflict on the food security not only for that population but can also be a driver of instability as well and so that's quite interesting and. And so when we're looking across the future and we're seeing these things, how efficient do you think we're going to be in the next 10 years? You know, I, I know you can't predict anything. It's very difficult.
1: Yeah, I hope so, because uh, crises are really uh, a wake-up call for, for people who are, who are positively thinking, right? And uh, I would say one of the key elements that uh, people may not have paid enough attention is actually on the, what is defined as a minimal nutrition requirement. What is enough? we talk about how much food we need to produce, but based on what, right? Well, what What is the basis, you know, people, obesity is an issue, uh, malnutrition is an issue. So what is actually the nutrition mm-hmm. requirement? So when we talk about circular, uh, food circular economy, we ought to consider what is, how much minimum is needed? You know, people are overeating these days, right? Because the food is so easily available for most of the part in the world. Uh, while we talk about, uh, other part of the world, people have no access to the food. That is not, because there's no food, it's a distribution issue, right? So when we talk about this uh, available food, we don't know what when to stop, <laughs> honestly. I mean, this is education part. And then uh, we always talk about disease, human health problem related to food. But I think if we can define clearly what the nutrition requirement is, that and then factor that back to the production system I think we will be on the right track to have a, a very healthy population in the world very better better uh, condition on environment and, and so on right? and then uh, so, so for all we know a lot of this environmental impact uh, everybody knows is actually because of this uh, we don't care about the environment including farming over farming right and then uh, deforestation also sometimes is related to farming, right? And not, not, sometimes it's not directly linked to farming, but like we talk about oil palm plantation, right? Right? Oil palm plantation, uh, palm oil, right? In Southeast Asia, that is clearly because uh, of this, uh, I would not say it, it's like, it's it just like profit driven type of uh, behavior. That behavior is another thing. And in the end, it backfires on us. We have all this climate change. COVID nineteen I think is part and parcel of the uh, climate change. Because when you destroy the environment, you you bring us human ourselves closer to the nature. We should be left alone actually. <laughs> yeah. This is all a really interesting discussion, I mean, because of the fact
0: that you have to determine or at least revisit the what we might call the baseline so like what is the fundamental or foundational nutrition yep. elements and then how does that drive i mean even and drive you know food supply and yes. chains and everything and and what's interesting about that and and not to get too far into the nutrition discussion but you could even see in the evolution of the united states when we had this food pyramid and and you know like people have really gotten away from that because yeah. they're like no your your diet needs to be full of grains and all the and carbohydrates and people are are now yeah. sort of realizing that maybe that's not the best idea, you know?
1: <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, uh, I think the the p- consumer's personal preference towards a, a type of diet they, they, they want to have is perfectly okay. But is, but the question is really how much is enough? I think uh, there's this uh, uh, saying that the food is a medicine. So, in fact... Which means food determines the health condition. So if we can, you know, nutrition status also determine how healthy we are. So if we can actually link food to the clinical nutrition, that that would be something I think would be, would help us tremendously. The whole world, you know, is a, uh, we I I myself I don't I mean I know how much I should be eating is, but it's like, uh, maybe it's not enough, maybe it's too much. We we don't we don't really know. We don't really know. No one really knows. Yeah. Mm. So let's, let's bring this down sort of like to the community
0: level now. And so, you know, we've talked about these larger scale issues in terms of, you know, producing more efficient processes, you know, distribution systems, technology, and also the, the larger context of, of social acceptance of different food sources. And, and if we're talking about our communities, our community leaders, state level, whatever the case it is, you know, city, state, federal level, what are some of the things that they could be doing now in terms of having an impact and increasing food security for their own communities?
1: Oh, well, I would say um, this is a very good question. In fact, uh, I would say, but depends on the what type of community you're talking about, right? It can be very different, uh, the type of approach they take. Now you're talking about urban community or farming community so i would say um, education is, a, is one thing uh, the second one is uh, a stay positive always have uh, more options prepare the community with a mindset that always have more options yeah so in fact this uh, new push towards alternative food uh, it should be interpreted as. Providing consumers with more options. That would be that would go a long way. Rather than say tomorrow we, we no more beef steak, you have to eat this uh, cultivated meat. So education is one thing. Prepare this positive mindset in the in the population to have uh, to prepare for the worse, but also um, accept new options. Prepare for new options. I think that this is uh, some of the sort of um, positive mindset we can we can instill in the in in, in people around us. Rather than anything that is missing, we start panicking. That, that, that would not be helpful. And uh, I think also uh, inject this uh, uh, concept of uh, shared responsibility, that's important. So, well, I've, you know, obviously everything starts sort of on the education
0: side, right? And so on the public education side, mm. informing the public that there are alternatives, there are options that are socially acceptable and it's completely fine. Yeah. But I, I think one thing that that yeah. you mentioned is yeah. also very important, which is to to start explaining to people the the terrible efficiency in the food supply system, right? And that is not oh, yeah. a lack of food, you know, overall. It's just that the fact that we're losing 30 and 40 percent of the, you know, the yep. food and, and just due to inefficiencies in the supply system, and that just because we're growing massive, massive crops doesn't mean it's actually turning to food, that it's used for industrial purposes exactly. or you know feeding animals, whatever the case is. Which okay, that's that right. eventually may turn into food right. as well. But the the overall idea is, I think that's largely uh, to a great extent missing in most of the communities we're dealing with unless you're really focused on the topic like you are. And then it's it's blatantly obvious to you that these things are happening. But I think that the education piece is going to be important, at least in my opinion, and then also to allow people to have perspective when they are looking at conflict like Ukraine and you hear about, well, you know, 40% of the world's exports are, you know, going to be impacted. Okay, well, let's look into that a little bit to understand it.
1: Yeah, I I think uh, just to follow up on this point, I think another uh, important part is that for for community if they have some some hands-on experience, they help help them change the the way they perceive things. You know. When they look, go to a restaurant, they say, oh, go to a supermarket, they just pay something they see, oh, so easy to get. But if you ask them to start practicing some kind of green vegetable on their own, a community garden, these are they, then they, I think they, they will appreciate food much better and, and start with a school. And, uh, and, and so the residents, and uh, people from Yang, they will have this idea that Actually, food do not do not come so easily. But for farmers, that's a, a different uh, bowl game because for farmers, it, 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 we could actually education also important. But it's different type of education to sort of uh, give them uh, uh, upskill type of training. So it's not just every day in day out traditional farming. There's a war, no more, no more, no more farming. You see, so they they could adapt to different set of uh, a job. Jobs, uh, job scope and then uh, make a living out of it so it's not necessarily just every day just uh, plant the seed and the harvest uh, uh, this would be uh, this would be would not be a job stable job anyway because all this automation there will be other jobs soon also so maybe I would say perhaps uh, uh, learn some kind of this uh, technology like uh, simple internet things uh, apps all these things so this can be sort of a uh, uh, make them more curious about outside world and then from there pick up some simple skills so they are they are always prepared for new new opportunities because I, I always believe that uh, people see some guys are always lucky and they're not lucky because they're better prepared I think this is a, this can be applied for many people when they are prepared opportunity come along they grab it so they become more successful yeah. Oh, definitely. I think if you are in
0: a large agricultural community, I think your concerns are obviously going to be very different. So because it's from a business model, it's going to be sort of demand driven crops. And, and, you know, you want to have a large crop to be able to sell it to be able to generate revenue and, you know, income for, for the community, for your family, things like that, especially if you're a farmer. and And I guess in many ways, it's just having to adapt to a different business model, right? And and on the on the reskilling, I yeah. find that a, a pretty difficult discussion personally because, you know, it's difficult to take people who have been doing something like farming for years and then just try and port them over to a technology job. But where, where you could – I think if people were creative to a certain extent, what would be interesting is like, okay, if you're in an urban environment and you want to create these sort of community gardens and community, you know, agricultural sort of base it would be interesting to bring the farmers in to help you do that right so sort of adapting a different business model to be able to do those things and then so i think it just requires some creative application and creative uh solutions to be able to get around these issues overall
1: the farmers uh, uh up- technology uptaking right i i, I agree with you uh, but i always equate this uh, difficulty to take up new challenges it's human nature again, right? If you talk, if you look at the university professors, not everyone is so so sort of creative, or innovate innovative, because they have a stable job. There's no no really uh, no need to push themselves so far. I think uh, uh, this is a question that is difficult to answer because uh, they have stable income unless the department closed down, right? So likewise for the farmers unless no one buys a product yeah that's that's definitely
0: it's an interesting and complex problem i don't think we can solve it today but it's interesting in terms of you know if you were like like you were talking about the the urban urban gardening right or urban agriculture i guess i should say it's a better word um you know and to maybe using that same expertise of people who are in the farming industry and and larger agricultural projects and you know get them reoriented to help help big cities grow sort of urban agricultural products and systems, you know, because they're the ones, the farmers the people that work with these things are actually, they are, are actually the ones that can really do it. And the system is, is sort of, they could help build that because they have the expertise. I don't know, just some ideas, but anyway, that's a, it's a really
1: interesting discussion. But I, I, I use an, I use another example that will illustrate the point that uh, everyone will have a have a place in the future food system in singapore as you know we have this uh, aquaculture industry which i would not say booming but it's changing in nature because you used to have this uh, small small scale fish farmer family based fish farmers uh, they use uh, um, near shore farming but because of this water condition pollution all these things so their business is not it's not really striving. but and then now we have this a big boy coming to Singapore. They set up this uh, aquaculture facility uh, to really produce a lot of uh, fish protein for, for Singapore. So uh, I was approached last last uh, two weeks by by local newspapers the street Time, to ask me for uh, give some advice to the small fish farmers. I use a very simple example. I say, Big boys, they will not grow all the fish species. They only choose those popular high demand, high demand. But consumers, they don't want to eat the same thing all the time. So the small fish farmer, they can grow something that the big big boys are not growing, right? And also, with a lot of these innovation in terms of alternative fish feed, uh, fish vaccine, all these things, but big boy have no time to test the efficiency so they need a test bait this small small fish farmer can well be the test bait so when you're working together everybody is happy everybody win-win situation for everyone so it's about the prepare for to try new options and stay relevant stay relevant in the game mm-hmm. yeah so there will be opportunities yeah
0: well, on that on that positive note, I wanted to say, uh, you know, we're just about out of time. So thank you very much for joining us, Professor Chen. It's really interesting discussion and, and hearing about sort of the inefficiencies in the food food system and and where we can improve. Um, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to find you?
1: Oh, uh, my email. Oh, I can uh, in my email reply. I can even give you my mobile number, so you can you can uh, WhatsApp me or whatever. Right.
0: Okay, so we'll just include your, your links and things like that and how to contact you in the show notes for the podcast. And anybody who's interested can just reach out to you directly. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Capacity Building International and the International Emergency Management Society. You can join teams today at TIEMS.info, that's T I ems.info and also sign up for the International Emergency Management Newsletter by CBI at capacitybuildingint.com. Is there a topic you would like to hear about or are you a functional expert and want to be featured on our show? If so, reach out to us at info at and let us know. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.